Welcome to this episode of Pen to Paper Press Podcast. I'm Cindy Coaches. There is a backstory weaved into each book. To explore the creative process, I am sitting down with authors, writers, editors, publishers, and an array of creative souls to have a conversation centered on how they develop their stories to completing their works of art. Each episode is an opportunity for us to explore mindsets, pearls of wisdom, and the experiences that began our journey as an author from the moment we put pen to paper. Carrie Knowles is an award-winning artist, an author with a passport the size of a library, and is passionate about guiding and teaching writers on their creative path. She has published both nonfiction and fiction books, and she was named the North Carolina Piedmont Laureate for short fiction in 2014. The titles to her books include Lillian's Garden, The Inevitable Past, A Musical Affair, and she transformed a collection of short stories into black tie optional. Her memoir is The Last Childhood, A Family Story of Alzheimer's, and Carrie's writing workbook is a self-guided workbook and gentle tour on learning how to write short stories from start to finish. Her latest book, Shifting Forward, is a collection of essays from her column in Psychology Today. Welcome to the Pen to Paper Press virtual studio, Carrie. It is so great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. And it's so much fun in these virtual studios that I sort of always fit no matter what, you know. (laughs) And we don't have, you know, if we have a bad hair day, it's perfectly fine. (laughs) There are bad, perfectly bad hair days. And we don't have to, you know, truly, we don't have to throw on the mascara or the lipstick or or any any gussying up. We can just come as we are. So. (laughs) And, you know, quite honestly, it was uh, fun to, you know, write out your introduction. And I left a lot out, by the way. (laughs) And a couple books that fell by the wayside, but you know, we'll get to those. (laughs) We will because, you know, I really wanted to, I wanted to talk to you versus versus describe you because like you said eventually we'll we'll get to those uh different aspects um you know further into the conversation but what I would love to learn about is the free range studio how did that come into fruition that's a very that's uh, I can tell you exactly how that came into fruition um I had for many years we had three children And for many years I had, I kept an office at home Um, after I got married. I didn't get married until my thirties. And um, so I I had an office, very nice office in uh, both the homes we have at, you know, uh, at different times. And um, I, uh, you know, had carted from Chicago to Raleigh, North Carolina to wherever we were the same bricks and boards that I had made bookcases of when I was in college. And it was like, that worked, you know, that people used to do that. You know, we used to get cinder blocks and one by 12 boards and make, you know, bookcases. Very point. This was long before Ikea got the idea that, you know, we gave them, you know, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure we should have, uh, you know, patented that. 
But I was um, periodically I'm asked to lecture at various places and I was I don't even know where it was. Um, and it was like a weekend kind of workshop thing. And I was talking about, uh, you know, questions came up about, you know, um, working styles and where people work and what's important. And, and um, I got up there in my bold self and said, you know, it's so important to have a place that you recognize as your space to work in. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing you do when you're there, you write, that's it. You don't do anything else. You don't fold laundry. You don't do anything else. And I came home from that workshop and I, you know, I was very, like I said, I was very bold in my presentation and said, you know, this is so important if you really want to be professional about what you're doing to have a professional space. And um, I came home and I looked at my little office and I looked at my bricks and my boards and I went, hmm, you know, put your money where your mouth is. And <laughs> I said to my husband, I came down for dinner and I said, um, I'm going to go buy a building. And he said, you're going to do what? And I said, I'm going to buy a building. And he said, okay. And I started looking and I found a, a, a building um, on the edge of a historic district in Raleigh. And it had originally been an off, uh, uh, law offices. Okay. And then briefly in the 60s, early 60s, it had been a home. And then it went reverted back to becoming a law office. In fact, I bought it from a lawyer who had his office there. And that became the free range studio. And it had, I am also a visual artist. And um, I took, you know, once again, a bold move. I took two of the rooms, two of the offices, and I broke down the wall in between them and made, um, you know, one of them was my studio and the other one was my writing office. And then I had another office downstairs that I rented to Peggy Payne, another wonderful writer. And uh, then the upstairs, uh, there were two offices upstairs. And periodically, um, there would be other artists and writers in residence there, or, um, you know, we actually had, you know, it was the way it was zoned, I could let somebody live up there, you know, if they were in Raleigh and needed a place and they were here and they needed an actual residence. Mm -hmm. Um, and then a number of writers used the upstairs and various tenants over the 17 years that I owned the building. I actually just sold the building. Um, you know, times change, things grow. Right. And the, the Free Range Studio was a place that I was very proud of. And lots of great work came out of that. And there was a lot of support um, for other writers and artists to do interesting work there. Um, so that was the free range studio and where dreams should have no fences and, uh, you know, creativity, no boundaries. That's was our slogan. And um, the time came for us to leave Raleigh recently. And uh, we decided to do that. And I sold my office building actually to a good friend of mine who's a violin maker. And so now it's gonna become a violin artisan shop which is really quite wonderful you know that it has a that new is. yeah and so we uh, we have a home that we've had for a while in Oberlin Ohio and I have an office here and I also have a two-car garage you have to understand 
in the south nobody nobody has a garage and um this little home that we bought has a an attached two-car garage i thought i was the queen of the world I thought, <laughs> oh my god i have i told everybody they said what is your little house i said oh it's little but i have a two-car garage so i had somebody come in and insulate it really well and had an electrician come and put great lighting in it and i had a guy build some studio pieces for me that are on wheels so i back the car out wheel them out and you know i've got a workspace and um we just recently in fact this weekend bought a place also in washington dc so i'm going to live the best life ever i have yes. a, i have a home between two cornfields in oberlin ohio and oberlin is a tiny tiny wonderful college town and then I'll have um, a home in uh, Hill East and Capitol Hill area in downtown DC and be with all that culture. And I'm hoping some good ideas will come from it. And I feel quite lucky to be able to be in this position now. But you know, what helped was to sell an office building and also to sell a home in Raleigh. So there you are, there you have it. And it was interesting. And I, I do think that it's so important for um, everyone, particularly women, because I mean, we have a tendency to, you know, I think the hardest thing about a woman working at home is to step over the laundry. You know, there ought to be like an exercise that you do. That, <laughs> uh, you, know, you know how like those balance exercises where yes. you have to like move from foot to foot. There ought to be like a whole regime. Maybe I'll write about this. There has to be a whole regime where you have to learn to walk through the laundry, like just literally step over the laundry going to your office. And you, you know, you turn off all the other phones and you, you, that's it. And uh, you have a space. Um, one of the nice things, at, many years ago, I had the privilege, I was a scholarship winner for Breadloaf Writers Conference, and um, too long of a story, but the, you know, the, it was the, uh, the waiter scholarship, which was always seen as like the, you know, holy of holies, and we wore white dinner jackets, and we, you know, sort of did the whole thing. And we got in trouble, the waiters did, because we had a renegade reading of our work, which was seen as very bad form that only the, the big names could do that. And, um, but then they realized if they kicked us out, you know, they threatened to kick us out for doing that. If they kicked us out, there would be nobody to serve dinner. So it's like, <laughs> can't kick these people out, you know, and this was, uh it was a very funny thing this is 1971 and uh anyway isaac asimov was there which was such a privilege to meet him and and he got wind of what had happened and we were you know resoundedly told you know we shouldn't be doing that we had to get in our place and wait our turn and whatever and he went to the director and said look um i want to give these people a gift and they were like, um, you know, you don't exactly say no to Isaac Asimov. And so he gave us the waiters um, who had gotten into trouble. He gave us an evening with just him and nobody else could attend. And so we spent an entire evening with Isaac Asimov and he told us many wonderful things. At that point, I think he had 27 books in print. He was really brilliant. He was very funny, very relaxed, very funny. 
And he said, in the course of the evening, he said, if anybody tells you that they write more than four hours a day, he said, they're lying. They're lying. You can't do it for four, more than four hours a day. <laughs> and, and I thought that that was such a great thing to know, you know, that, um, you know, there's many other things now that a writer has to do, you know, like the podcasts and the, um, you know, Facebook and, uh, you know, all of those things mm-hmm. do so much. Plus, you have to do a certain amount, no matter who publishes you, you have to do a certain amount of legwork in terms of, you know, making connections and tweeting and, you know, who, who would ever know that we would be saying things like, you know, do you tweet, you know, yeah, right? <laughs> what is your tweet handle? And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, do you know how old I am? I don't do that. Anyway, I do do that now, you know, and, um, but to actually sit down and work, that's four hours of hard work. If you can do that, you can do anything. You yes. can really do well. Um, if you write two pages a day, two keepers, not just blah, you know, but two pages that by the end of the four hours, you are willing to say, these are mine. I am proud of these. I'm going to keep these. If you do that five days a week, if you take off all the legal holidays and you take off a week for your birthday and you take a two week vacation somewhere and you take an extra week and a half or two weeks just in case you get a cold if you do that in a year's time you'll have basically a book done by the end of the year yes yeah um there are a lot of interruptions in life but i mean i think the first step is stepping over the laundry the first step is is getting to that room that's your room where you can work in and you identify that. Um, the other thing, which is um, cell phones, and you can stop me anytime because once I get going, you know. I, oh, I, I know. Hey, I'm, I'm good with all of this. And cell phones, you're right. That uh, is probably mm, my biggest distraction. Right. It's not Facebook. It's my cell phone. It's your cell phone. And so um, we have kids who live all over the world. So I, you know, I, my excuse is I need to know if everybody's okay. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That is so very important. (laughs) But um, the other thing is so important that you treat sitting down and writing when you sit down and your computer is open, that computer is a sacred, you and that computer have made a sacred space. And you are not to surf the internet. You are not to find, oh, that perfect pair of shoes, or I need some new hangers, or, you know, I wonder if Amazon would deliver, or let me check my Amazon number. Don't ever check your Amazon numbers. I wanted to choke myself yesterday when I did that. But, you know, um, so you just don't do those things. You know, you have to kind of step over the laundry. And the next thing you have to do is when you sit down in that chair, that is writing time. That's not surfing time. And the other thing, the rule that I made for myself, which worked really, really well is if I took a phone call, I stood up and turned my back to my computer and took the phone call away from my computer. That's an interesting idea because what it does is it helps to um, separate what you're doing and divert your attention 
one to the call to who you're talking to but also when you get back to it you're engaging that focus back on that's brilliant i like that i'm gonna have to remember that (laughs) it's very very conscious and you know you just know if you're gonna pick up that phone and make a phone call because your husband said oh could you book blah 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 or whatever the answer is okay fine i'll do that you don't do it sitting at your desk that is you establish a sacred space for yourself to work into the story and um it works i mean it helps so but the first step, like I said, is stepping over the laundry. If you're going to work at home, it's stepping over the laundry. Yes. Yes. And I, there's a whole bunch of people out there going, can I do that? Yeah, <laughs> you can. <laughs> I, I mean, you, know, you kind of say, well, let me look at my drawer and see if I've got enough underwear to like not do laundry today. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so important. I mean, and that's, because it's, we are easily distracted. I don't know about you, yes. but you know, I'm like, you know, I'm very easily distracted. We're all very easily distracted. Yes. And so let's, let's start chipping away at what distracts us and set some new parameters for ourselves and say this, I've, I've just started an article today, um, you know, with my psych today column, which is a lot of fun, but anyway, um, I was reminded you know, by everything that's going on in the, you know, let's not talk about all of that stuff. Yeah, we're not going there. (laughs) I was reminded, I I had this idea about, um, you know, because I do talk about writing a lot on podcasts and to other people and when I go lecture, whatever. And so the whole issue of what is a vocation, what is an avocation and what is a hobby um, first, let me say, when I bought the the building, when I bought the free range studio, mm-hmm. people would, they were just shocked. Now, these are people who knew me, but you know, if you're a writer, you really don't have that many people you can talk about your writing to because right. 99.9% of the world doesn't understand, including your mother, doesn't understand why you're still working on that book. Why are you still working on that book? Or have we moved to another book? What What's going on here? You know, so there are very few people that, you know, Peggy Payne is like, I, I can talk, Peggy and I can talk about all that stuff. I have very few people that I can talk about that stuff with. Um, but anyway, um, when I bought the building, people were like, well, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? I bought a building. You know, I, I own a building. I own a little office building. It's very cute. <laughs> You're like it. And uh, they said, well, um, excuse me, but uh, how often uh, do you go to that building? I mean, you bought a building. How often do you go to work at that? And I said, really? I said, um, I've been doing this professionally since I was in my very early 20s and actually 19. And um, I said, uh, this is my job. And I said, how often do you go to your office? And they said, well, I have a job. And I said, well, so do I. This is my job. And I said, I'm a nine to fiver, Monday through Friday. I do this just like you. I get dressed up and I get in my car and I drive to my office and I park in my little parking space and I walk in and I bing my computer and I'm at work. I'm at work. Don't call me to pick up your kid because I'm at work. So I always dressed up to go to work, even when it was in my home. And people were always shocked by that. I mean, they were terribly shocked by that. And then a couple of years ago, 
after my husband retired, he kind of said, you know, are you going to retire? And I said, oh, yeah, well, there's no HR department for me. So, <laughs> you know, it's very complicated. Plus, I have this publisher and it's a very complicated issue. So I decided I was going to try, I was going to try sort of like an early, sort of a little bit of a retirement. You know, I was going to do something that would be retirement like and um, or retirement light, I should say, and uh, kind of treat it like uh, an opening of a new restaurant or something. So I decided, well, I'm the one who decided to go in at nine o'clock, nine to five. So what if I started taking an exercise, a water exercise class every morning, and then I don't get to the office until 10? That seemed to me to be like a super reasonable adult decision for how I was going to deal with the fact that, you know, maybe one of these days I should retire. So I did that. And I love the swim classes. I, I still do them. I love them, love them, love them. And because um, you can't hurt yourself in the water. And uh, I don't understand my friends who say, well, I don't get wet. And I say, do you take a shower? I don't, I don't get that. Anyway. <laughs> um good point (laughs) exactly you know so I started going I started going to the pool and doing my little pool thing and then I would shower and get dressed and put on my makeup and off I'd go to my office and I would arrive 10 10 15 sometimes 10 20 and there weren't enough hours in the day for me to get everything I needed to get done in order to stay afloat as a writer. So all of a sudden, instead of working from nine to five, I was working from 10 to six. So I didn't do anything. You know, I didn't kind of step back from my work at all, but anyway, it's complicated. There's no HR department, you know? And, you know, sometimes we have the most generous boss. Sometimes we have the, the cruelest boss and the most shaming Oh, I've got that one. That's mine. The cruel shaming one is that's my boss. I don't have the gentle one. I don't, you know, I almost have to ask permission. You know, I could be like, I really need a new pair of shoes and I can't do it over the weekend. Would you mind if I just took maybe an hour off and went there? No. Yeah. No, I have the cruel boss. Uh, unless it involves my grandkids, then it's like, yeah. you, you know, grandma overrules the boss. Right. Right. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's it's okay. Bye. <laughs> I mean, that's the reason that we're in Oberlin, Ohio, and the reason why we just bought a place in downtown, you know, in uh, on Capitol Hill is because we have grandchildren in Oberlin, and we have grandchildren in D.C., and we actually have two lovely, beautiful, wonderful grandchildren in Brussels. Our oldest son lives in Belgium. And which we haven't been able to go to because of COVID. And so now we're, you know, we're better situated for a really good, um, you know, plane connection. And so we hope that, you know, this is all going to somehow work out. Yeah. So the grandma thing is, that's a whole, that's a whole nother podcast. We could come back about, you know, (laughs) the the grandma podcast. It's very, (laughs) very different, you know, it is. And, you know, my grandchildren, uh, our grandchildren, you know, don't quite grasp the idea that Gaga works, you know, (laughs) and what does she do? You know, is that work? It sounds like my mother, you know, they've just, they've, they're channeling my mother. I remember my mother. um, And let me just say, you know, I did a lot of uh, commercial work to keep me afloat, which I can talk about that too. You know, the balance between commercial work and creative work. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, there's creative commercial work, but you got to make money and it's, 
you know, books are not the way to make money, but you know, you, you do those other things. And I remember my mother saying one time, just in such distress and, uh, you know, I've been self, you know, I, I have been self-employed for, for years and I've been, I've always paid my bills and, and, you know, whatever. And my mother would say, Oh, just, I, I just, every day I think, you're going to call me and tell me you've got a real job. And I said, mom, I have a real job. She said, no, 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 that's not what you do. Isn't a real job. And I, you know, I hear the same thing. My grandchildren say, is that, is that a job? And I said, yes, it's a job. It is a job. You know, anyway, back to the boyfriend. Let me tell you that story. So, (laughs) so I'm doing this article about um, I'm writing an article about, you know, vocation, avocation and hobby. And um, I remembered that many years ago um, in my early 20s, um, a young man, not so young, a man wanted to marry me. And in the proposal to marry me, he, uh, he just, he was stupid. Let me just say that right up front. <laughs> and he said, and I quote, and I just want you to know, I think it's wonderful that you like to write because I think it's very important for a woman to have a hobby. Ooh. Ooh. So Ooh. Uh-uh. I, just say, I got up from that dinner, walked out the door and never looked back, you know, I, I'd be gone too. I'd be like, Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> now, do you really want to like would you like to edit that you know no. oh i wouldn't have given him a chance <laughs> i'm a little harder <laughs> you know it, it's not a hobby and um and i tell people young you know young people say i want to be a writer and i my first question is have you ever handed a paper in late at school and they look at me like well and uh, yeah and I say, well, then do something else because there's no late papers in professional work. There's, there's no missed deadlines that you don't do that or you don't get paid. Right. You don't get paid. Correct. And there are people who function better when they have those deadlines. Yeah. And, but here's the key element who's determining that deadline if I set a deadline for myself, yeah, I can push it off. I'm, I, I don't always hold that same rigid, you know, this is the due date when it's myself that creates that deadline. But if you were to say, you know what, Cindy, I need you to write blah, blah, blah. And I need it by May 31st. Yeah, I might procrastinate for the first week and, and, you know, say that I'm mulling it over in my head, but you will have it. Um, and it will be good on May 31st. I may have stayed up all night, but <laughs> you will have it. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's like deadlines. The reason that, you know, I said, why do you think the word dead is in that, you know, deadline. deadline. It's not like final line. It's not like winning line. It's deadline. You know? Yeah, winning line. Right. Winning line. I'm yeah. at the winning line. I, I, I got the finish line. Yay. No, deadline. You, you don't make it, you know. Oh my gosh. Oh, so true. So, so true. I, you know, I had not really put that you know twist on on the word i will now (laughs) oh i will now (laughs) 
no true but it's so you know the college students just look at me like uh yeah of course you know I said down to the wire mm, no 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 we don't do that you know and the computer has made that whole deadline thing way different than it was 50 years ago um you know, oh yes way different and uh you know, I don't particularly like it, um, you know, because it used to be you would do something and then you would pop it in the mail and three days later, the editor would get it and then they would call you and say, you know, we're thinking maybe run a sidebar about this. And can you do that? Give us another 250, 300 words on that. And I say, oh, sure. And then I would write those and then I would send them in and they would say, oh, that's really nice. Let's let's make that bigger. And I go, OK, sure. Let's. And so you had this breathing space, you know, you had this time to kind of consider the whole of what you were doing and you would, you would have time. They would have time to think you would have time to think you would have deadlines that would come, you know, that, okay, I need this by, okay, now we want more and we're going to make another deadline. And everybody had time. Everybody had time to think. And now mm-hmm. it's like you do something and you touch that little button and bam, it's off. And somebody calls you and says, or doesn't even call you, sends you a text and says, uh, can we need another 300 words by four? And you're like, well, this isn't as much fun as I used to have. You know, it's different. Yeah. Very different. And I remember, we'll see, I, oh my gosh, years and years ago, periodically I would do interviews in the area that I live for a newspaper columnist and she would do local stuff but every once in a while stuff would be happening here and it was great I loved working with her through email and as you were talking about that was like oh my gosh I remember that with with Kathy you know she'd be what about this and and I need it by uh, Friday can you do it And, and I'd be like yeah, yeah of yeah. course how, how do I get a hold of this person you know and I get a phone number and 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 at that point you know it was you met the person in person right you didn't do interviews like this most certainly not over the internet because at that point the internet was not something that was accessible to us right Right. You know, not not like this anyways. You know, you didn't have the video conference calls. You didn't I don't even think at that point you could really do phone calls. Skype wasn't a thing at that point. Email, you could email. There was you, yeah, before Skype there was something else. I don't remember what it was, but MySpace was a MySpace? It was hard, you know, and, and I don't remember. And, and then it was all, all this technology and stuff, you know, which um, some of us excel at and others of us don't. I and, do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I somehow I have a natural gift of figuring the stuff out. And that's where, you know, I, that's where I become the teacher and I end up showing others how to do, you know, X, Y, Z. Well, what do you mean? I can't find that email. Well, do you have it stuff sorted in folders? And it's like, folders I can do folders what do you mean there's there's a filing cabinet in my computer or in my email and it's like can we meet I'll show you <laughs> uh, you would uh my uh, okay um you, you would sort of um you would 
you would probably send me to the corner and make me sit and think hard about what I'm doing and why I'm, why my computer is such a mess. And oh, not at all, not at all. I, you know, I, oh, a dear, dear, dear friend of mine, and she's old enough to be my mother, but yet her and I are sisters on many, many levels. And she worked in an office and she was the oldest one in the office. And she, you know, she didn't understand email. She knew how to do it. She know, she knew right. how to send and receive open attachments. She understood all of that, but she didn't understand how to use it. And some of the gals in the office would shame her. Well, what do you mean you can't find in, you know, right. they, they berated her. And so she because I, at that point, I was in newspaper sales, and I was in her office, and she's like, I can't find this, you know, and I'm really so sorry, I'm taking up your time, and I'm like, you're fine, don't worry about it, and she's like, I just wish I knew how to do, I'm like, well, I can show you how to do that, that's no problem, she's like, would you, and then she closed the office door, and she's like, they won't help me, and I'm like, what do you mean they won't help you, she's like, they won't they just tell me I'm you know I'm I'm whatever and 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 basically shamed her and so she couldn't ask for help because of because of that and so I I'm like how about we meet after hours and I will show you and so I would meet her at the office at like eight o'clock at night you know how to use her email how to function through different other programs that she was struggling with because she w- she had been shamed so bad that she could not ask for help. And to me, that's cruel. I how how do you do that to somebody? How do you I, not help? And you know, it's uh, and you know, if you go to a, a a computer repair shop, you know, and they start doing that thing and saying, "Oh, this is so old," and you go, "This is not old. It's two years old. This is not old." Don't, don't give me that. I need a new machine. Just fix this machine for me. Thank you very much. No, it's hard. Um, and, and so you have to be, I think you have to learn to be um, shameless and flexible and willing to say, okay, I don't know how to do this. So, yes. you know, um, so either we're going to find another way for us to have a conversation or we're not going to have a conversation because this machine won't do that or whatever. Um, now I was just informed that my iPhone six is going to be made absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's there. You go. And I keep saying to my husband, "I need to go." Oh, I need to go. This is his his little computer. I'll be right back. I'm going to give him because his yeah. phone is to his computer and it keeps ringing. The technical problem, you know. I'm in my husband's office and he left his iPad and every time his phone rings, his iPad rings. You know, so there you go. I love uh, it. Well, you want to know what's really funny? We have been talking for for quite a while, and we have yet to talk about your books. <laughs> and, that's why I'm here, you know. <laughs> so I, it's quite obvious. You and I could spend hours and hours talking, uh, and and you know, and truly, everything that we've shared. I mean, my audience is going to resonate with. Because they're going to be, they're going to be giggling right along with us. And they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I recognize that. Or, yeah, I get that. <laughs> the laundry thing, you know, yeah. 
No, my books. Um, yeah, I was the Piedmont Laureate in 2014 for short fiction. And um, that was really interesting. I did 42 workshops in 10 months. Wow, um, that's 3, crazy. It was crazy. I put 3,000 miles on my car and covered five counties in North Carolina. And, um, you know, because it was sponsored by the um, arts councils in these, you know, five um, counties, it was free, you know. And so it was very interesting because it was, um, people could take these classes, these workshops at no expense. And um, they didn't even, you know, they out of courtesy had to register because we needed to know how many people, you know, how big the room had to be, whatever, where I, where I was going to be. And um, so people could take these people who were thinking about maybe they wanted to be a writer or they wanted to write something. They could do it without having to tell anyone that they were taking a workshop and that they were, you know, blah, 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 blah. And um, so. Uh, it was very convenient. So I had a, a wide range of people who, um, I, you know, I had people who were doctors and lawyers and this and that. And I had housewives, you know, the doctors and lawyers and engineers had gone to college and graduate school and professional school and whatever, but they hadn't taken any, any literature classes or any creative writing classes, but they, they wanted to move their professional work into, you know, into a more creative venue, a more public venue. Mm -hmm. And then I had housewives and I had teenagers and I had um, elderly people. I had, but, you know, 99% of them had never had literature classes. So where I had taught before, you know, was able, you know, I was able to say, well, okay, in Madame Bovary, blah, 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 we see this and, you know, we can model after that or, you know, Tom Sawyer, even something as simple as that, you know, we could talk literature in terms of, of style and writing style and how to handle dialogue and all these things. Well, all of a sudden I had an audience who didn't read those things, that that was a foreign language to them. So I had to create you know, and I had lectured for years up to that point. So I had to create a new way to talk about writing and how to write. And that became the writing workbook. Um, and it is set up uh, with simple lessons and um, in really down to earth language. And um, instead of books, I use movies um, that popular movies that people have seen to talk mm -hmm. about character development and plot development and and all of those issues um, and you know uh, and I had to come up with exercises for them to do that were um, not academic you know that were doable that there were something that would they would relate to um, and um, so, and then, so you have these little lessons that are four to five pages long, then you have questions. Um, and if you did those questions and then you had prompts, so you could take what you learned from that and mm -hmm. prompt, and then you could write a brief thing for yourself in the workbook. If you did all of that throughout the whole book, if you work the workbook, which it is a workbook, mm -hmm. build out all that stuff by the end of it you would have the foundation for a book for yourself to begin to write a book. And you would understand how to do dialogue and you would understand 
you know, how to, to do all of that stuff and in a very painless way. So I took all the lessons that I developed for those 40 workshops and turned it into a workbook, basically, that anybody could follow. And so that's what it is. And it's kind of geared towards, you know, I don't want to say that it's, you know, I mean, anybody with a high school education is going to be able to understand everything in that book. Right. It's not written in a, you know, foreign language that's exactly like you're it's not like you know going to the doctor's office where they're talking latin and you're like going huh (laughs) you know know, denouement and all of that stuff and you know no it's just simple and so it's it's like an easy workbook be used in high school classes it could be used in junior high junior college it could be used by an individual um but it is a gentle walk through writing is what it really is. And I love the cover. I, you know, all of your books have these, they're, the covers of all your books are very stand alone, meaning you're not following a certain theme and each one represents what the book is. And when I came across that cover, I was like, oh, I love it. <laughs> right. And, you know, so people, cause it has a long title and, um, that you know that you sort of pick your battles with your publisher and, and uh, I had a different title and then my publisher and the um the uh Kathy who does the um the covers has been doing I think the last five books she's done the covers for the, my last five books and she just said no 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 this is this needs to be the title I can never remember the whole title so I tell people if you want to give it you know just go to all canyon and you can get it there you can call your bookstore just say writing workbook Knowles and you'll they'll know what it is and they'll find it and they'll be able to get it for you you know um but anyway it's uh it's uh and we purposely we went round and round with my publisher um we purposely decided not to do it as an ebook because um, there's wonderful research out there about retention and that if you take physical notes with a pencil and a pen and a piece of paper, if you take notes that way, any writing you do that way, it's kinetic and you, you retain the information better and then taking notes on, then filling out things with your computer. You know, right. when you do the computer stuff, it's like, you know, once it's done, done, it's flushed, you know, it's out of there. So we purposely did it. So it's, it's a workbook, you have to get the workbook, you can't do it on, you know, you can't do it online. Right. And I appreciate that, because of the fact that, well, for one, I, I don't enjoy reading uh, ebooks. You know, to me, I turn off the computer it's it's another file that I've closed and chances are of me opening it are minimal. Now, if I've got a physical book, it's sitting on my table, it's sitting on my nightstand, it's sitting in the bathroom somewhere. It's a reminder that, oh, hey, yeah, I got that thing over there. Oh, yeah, I want to read that. And, you know, there is something about touching a book, the yeah. smell of the book, flipping the actual pages, feeling that and hearing the... Sh- you know, it, there's, there's something about that whole process. And for me, if, if I'm to retain it, it, it has to be a physical action for me. Right, 
right. such as writing out those answers, thinking, you know, just thinking it in my head. And, um, you know, I've gone to, I've attended many like online school course things or master classes or whatever, and everything's digital. Well, I'm not going to print it out because, oh my God, the price of ink cartridges is out of this world. I'm not going to spend, you know, two ink cartridges to print out a book. And if I write it out in a notebook without that, when I go back to the notebook, it's like, uh, what was I, what was that from? Right. You know, it's unrecognizable. And I just, for me, a workbook needs to be physical. Yeah. And that's, that's what that is. Yeah. So that's, that's a fun book. Let's see. Um, do you want to know about some about the other books? Oh, please. Yes. 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 The book that's coming out. Um, in fact, it's out this week. Um, that's nice. Yeah, it's nice. It's called Shifting Forward. Um, I was approached by psychology today about four years ago. I'm not a psychologist. Um, they, but they, the editor said, I happen to see some of your writing. I really love the way you write. And we want, um, we would like you to write in our per personal perspectives column and basically gave, you know, said, you know, needs a somewhat psychological bent. I said, well, I'm not a psychologist. And they said, yeah, but you often write about things that sort of lean in that direction, which is true. And um, so I write about all kinds of things from cats to COVID to gray hair to, <laughs> you know, you name it. And so it's the first 50 columns from my Psych Today column, which is called Shifting Forward. And um, so that's, it's, um, I'm really pleased. My, my, edit, my publisher is just so delighted about this. He came to me and he said, we love your column. We love your column. Please, please. Can we have, you know, and I said, well, how about when I get to 50, we'll do 50. And he said, 50, 50 is great. Get to 50 and we'll do 50. Um, so that's coming out. Um, I have a novel that, um, that I came out last year. Was it last year, or the year before, you know, COVID has us all confused about the calendar. Oh my um, gosh, doesn't it? <laughs> It's like we lost two years, but when we were in those two years, they were it it seemed to be this relentless, endless period of you know never gonna end. and it may not ever end. I mean, yeah. you know. Um uh so um I wrote, you know, kind of a fun romp. Um I have a very wonderful publisher, literary press publisher, who kind of you know, most publishers want you to repeat, you know, oh, you're this kind of writer. We want you to do that kind of book again and again. And oh, again. yes. Yeah. Pigeonhole you. Obviously, right into that. you look at my books and you say, mm, this is there's no there's no trend here, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I have a novel called uh, A Musical Affair, which is based on my older son and I um, several years ago. Um, did an international music festival together. We ran an international music festival together for five years. Wow. And we brought um, musicians in from all over Europe, young upcoming stars in the music world. And um, it was great. But I did, you know, he called me and said, mom, what do you think about this? I got this idea. Would you be willing to help me do this? And, um, you know, so of course I said, yes. I mean, how many times does, you know, do you have a chance to work with one of your kids on that sort of level? I had no idea what I was doing. So this book is a novel and it's, um, you know, it's kind of a peek behind the curtain 
as to what it takes to um, to do something like this. It's all about the arts, and it's really all about the money and arts. And um, it's fun. It's very fun. And um, uh, my daughter-in-law's grand uh, grandfather used to. He would read all my books, and he would call me up, and he'd say, "Sex, more sex. There's not enough sex in your books." So <laughs> when I wrote. When I wrote A Musical Affair, I called Jerry up and I said, okay, so now you got some sex in a book. I hope you like it. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> and then the novel before that, so it took a hard left. Um, it was, I guess the, the Musical Affair was a hard left. Um, it was a book that I didn't really want to write. You know, you will probably ask me at some point, where do you get your ideas? I mean, where... Where does Daltus come from? Um, uh, I, as I mentioned before, I'm also a visual artist and right. uh, had done some work in Australia. And I got invited to be part of, um, along with six other international artists, I was invited to be in a special exhibition in Brisbane. <clears throat> and where we were all what is referred to as dual artists, where we had two kind of media. Okay. My, writing and visual art anyway long story short um the curator of the show called me and uh of course when you get invited to do that be in a show like that they always want something fresh something you've never done before they want this to be like a you know a new you which is fine um and the name of the show was the inevitable past and that became the name of this book and uh anyway um Trevor called me and said, okay, we've done this. And we had, you, you know, you usually get 18 months to two years to sort of develop the artwork for a, that particular kind of show. And I was, you know, trying some things and, you know, da, 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 nothing was going very well, but, you know, the clock was ticking, but it wasn't ticking that loud. And uh, Trevor called me and he said, we've done the schematic for the gallery and you're going to have a 30-foot wall. And I said, a what? And he said, would you like more? And I said, <laughs> no, actually, see, because I'm going to bring all my artwork with me, uh, that I'm over. He said, you can do it, 30-foot. So anyway, um, here's the story I never wanted to write. And because I didn't really know any more than what I'm now going to tell you. And that is in 1902, a young woman was found badly beaten. Uh, on the train station in Macon, Georgia. She was very pregnant. She was unconscious. Oh, she no. didn't have a purse. She didn't have any ID. She didn't have a train ticket. She didn't have a piece of luggage. She didn't have a wedding ring or a mark on her hand where a wedding ring would have been. And she was very pregnant. And the police picked her up and took her to a place called the Door of Hope, which was a home for unwed mothers. Um, and the doctor examined her and realized that she was pretty far along with her pregnancy. But more important than that was that she was not going to make it. She was going to die. And they made the decision to do an emergency C-section and take the baby. And the baby was my father. Wow. And the body was never claimed. And he never found out who his mother was. And the matron of the Door of Hope at that time was a widow by the name of Mrs. Knowles. And she decided, my father, because of the 
in, it was an instrument birth. His eyes were damaged and he was blinded. And she decided, of course, it was, you know, in the South, it was Georgia, turn of the century. And um, she just, you know, it mattered who your daddy was. It mattered who yes. your mother was. Mm-hmm. And um, she realized that this child was probably not going to be adoptable because he was handicapped. And also because he, you know, had no lineage, no, you know, no anything. And so she raised him herself and gave him her last name. And that's why my last name is Knowles is because of Mrs. Knowles, Susan Knowles. And so that's all I had. And then, you know, I wrote the first law, wrote the first page of the book. And um, then I, uh, uh, realized that that the the mother the great you know the woman was speaking from the grave and because I've studied literature I knew that you know when Penelope was you know doing the tapestry and unwinding it every night you know uh, so that the suitors wouldn't bother her what that tapestry was at that time you know, if you, um, the daughter-in-law's responsibility by law was to create the shroud for their in-laws. And so what she was doing was weaving the shroud for Laertes. And that's why nobody could bother her because she was doing her sacred duty. And that's why, you know, because it's, you know, people are like, well, so what that she's working on this tapestry? So why did these guys step aside? And they stepped aside because it was the law. She had to finish that tapestry. And so she would unweave it every night. So all of a sudden I realized I had the first page of this book. And I realized that the woman was speaking from the, the grave. And so I created a 27 foot um fabric piece and I embroidered now let me just point out I didn't know how to embroider um and I embroidered freehand on um antique linen handkerchiefs and cut them out like leaves like you know when the DNA makes that little leaf looking pointy right and um so this 27 foot um I did a lot of research about what was a shroud, how big it is, the weight of the linen. And I made as accurately as I could something that would work as a shroud. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Kim Kirstein, helped me. She do. She was a fabric dyer. She helped me dye the fabric. And then I embroidered all the words, every word from the first page of that book onto these pieces of handkerchief. And they became like leaves and part of the DNA blowing through this piece. And so that that became the beginning of this book. And it's about the grandmother and the granddaughter and the grandmother needing something from the granddaughter. And so the book is written in two parts. So that's 180 degrees away from a romp about raising music for a music festival as you can possibly (laughs) it's it's a whole different journey yes (laughs) totally totally so you know ideas come from all kinds of places you know they do i know that we're running out of time but would you like me to read that first page i would love that okay let me go get it this will they're right over here don't go away yeah nope i'm i'm right here (laughs) 
And then I have a, and then there's a collection of short stories, which I really love, black tie optional, you know, whatever. I like them all for different reasons, but they're all very different. So this is the first page of the book. And this is, you know, I wrote the first page and it's stayed. I am the grandmother you never knew, the one who vanished the unsolved crime. I never held your father in my arms, only in my heart, but I was with him every step of his life as I am with you. I am your blue eyes and your fair skin, a flutter, a thought, a whisper. I use dreams to guide you over the rough spots my life has created for you. My dreams are your dreams. I am part of you. What happened to me the night your father was born has shaped your life. I rest deep in your DNA. I cannot change that. I wish I could. My experiences have made you slow to trust. Shadows make your heart race. I know. But the good of me is in you as well. You are strong because I was strong. You fight back. You speak your mind. You have courage and are curious. You are smart like your father. You are the best of me. It is time for you to know who I was and who you are because of all that happened and why I have come to you. I need your help. That's beautiful. That, and, that is beautiful. So that's the inevitable past. Yeah. So there are nine books. So we would have another hour to talk about the other. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, from from what I gathered at the beginning of our conversation is that you have this routine of writing and that is your process. And through other aspects of our conversation, your insights come to you very genuinely and, and in the moment. And it's like, you're, it's like you grasp a hold of it and say, okay, let's play or yeah. let's nurture this however you know depending on on the type of the book the the book about your mother's alzheimer i'm sure you didn't grasp that idea and say let's play you grasped that one and said let's nurture this right well actually my siblings who are wonderful wonderful people they came to me and they said nobody has written a book and it was true nobody had written a book at that time about the impact of alzheimer's on the family and they said you're the writer you need to do this because we need this book yes. and we're incredibly generous um and i was able to tell stories in the book about what we did right and what we did wrong. And we did many things wrong because we didn't have anybody to guide us. So it's a book that, um, and also because I had done um, a considerable amount of writing for medical stuff. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're a professional writer and you need to make a living, you write about all kinds of things. The other thing right. is you, you can't do that unless you're a good researcher, unless you like the library, unless you like, you know, and I tell people, Google's okay for a quickie, but get out and go to the library, talk to your librarian, find, find somebody who knows more than you do. Yes. More quick. And, um, and so I can hear my grandma, my grandmother was a librarian at the high school and then also oh, yeah. at the local libraries as well. And I can hear her going, 
thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's like um, if you read any of my books, if you um, if there's a street that's mentioned, there is that street in that city. And the, you know, and it's a one-way street or a two-way street. And I will tell you that. I like the real and I go out of my way to give you a real building. I and, mm-hmm. and I, you know, at a certain point in doing the inevitable past, I said to my husband, I said, road trip. I said, I, I need to go, I I need to go to Macon, Georgia. And um, because I, I got stalled in the book and um so we went to Macon, Georgia, and uh, I wanted to find my Mrs. Knowles, you know, uh, my namesake, I guess you could call her grandmother. Right. I wanted to find her grave. And she, I had uh, the uh, library in Macon, Georgia is unbelievable. It has a wing. It has a genealogy wing with wow. four full-time staff members who are trained in research like that and it was like how how did this happen they were fabulous I spent two days with them they were fabulous and at one point you know, so I learned all about Mrs. Knowles I learned all this stuff and then my younger brother Chuck he was wonderful he said let me help you do some research so I gave him some money and I said you know there's all these kind of clip files and things and turned him loose and I said you find everything you can so we did like together, we did tons and tons of research. So at a certain point, I said to the librarian, I said, I, I, she's buried here. Mrs. Knowles is buried here. And she, because we found her obituary and she said, yes. And she said, ah, there's a wonderful historian who's on, who um, knows the graveyards here. And she's with blah, 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 blah. Go, go meet her, go talk to her. And so she, um, and now let me just say, I was a third of the way through the book, but didn't know where the book was going because I didn't really have any information. Mm-hmm. I had what I had and that was it. Right. And um, so I found this wonderful woman and she got out all these maps and she said, okay, it'll be in the older cemetery. And we had the obituary, we had all the dates, we had everything. And she said, oh, she said, I found it. I found her gravesite. She said, but it's very, very odd. She said, um, you know, it's the largest gravesite in the whole cemetery, but there's only one grave marker there and that's hers. She's this very weird. And she said, you're going to have to park your car up here and you're going to have to walk down because you can't really take your car down there. And it's right at the edge of the cemetery. So my husband and I parked our car and we walked down, walked down, walked down and we get there. And the um, there's three steps going down to her gravesite. And okay. um, there's this big, big clearing, which is this, you could see it was one gigantic plot with one huge tree in the middle and this tiny, um, you know, uh, grave marker. But there were three steps going down to this area. And the three steps said, door of hope. <gasps> oh, I just got chills. And when we walked down there, she was in the middle and both of us said there are dozens and dozens of unmarked graves here of women and that became that whole issue of these unrecognized unmarked graves the lives of these women and how they were basically thrown away 
Um, that yeah. became the ending of the book. That became, you know, what the granddaughter had to do was to recognize these women. But it was the, it, you know, had I not gotten out of my chair, gotten in my car and done the research that I needed to do, this would be a very different book. You would never have had that. No. I, wow. So, so it's a lot about research and doing, you know, um, it's and, about and, getting her out of her head. Right, right. And it's about getting getting out of your chair, you know, oh. on the street. Um, look around you, uh, you know, see what's there and watch people. It's okay to watch people, you know, um, and to think, well, why did they do that? You know, well, what's this? Well, who's that? And um, that's where characters come from. That's where characters come from. Um, I'll tell one more story. I know we're over time. Oh, See? you're fine. You're fine. Don't worry about. So um, there's, by, by the way, there's really good chapters in the writing workbook about editing. It's called my boot camp editing. Um, and if you follow it, you become a great editor of your own work. So many years ago, I um, kind of hit a wall and I needed to do something. And I wound up said to my husband, I said, I, I just need to get out of the house. I need to go do something that I've never done before. And mm -hmm. I wound up going to uh, a uh, bankruptcy auction, um, which was very interesting of this very, very, very fancy um, store that was down the street from where we lived. And um, anyway, I wound up buying uh, a rug, uh, a very tattered, old, old rug and uh for just about nothing and that became the basis of ashwin's rug because i did all this research about you know this type of rug mm -hmm. and it was a turkoman it was this it was that i went to a rug dealer who was an expert on this particular style of rug and he explained all the um symbols that were in the rug and he told me where the rug came from and you know what it was and it was actually um it would have been part of the weaver's dowry, you know, she would in it, you know, would have been part of, it would have been a tent door as well as a prayer rug and this and that, and, you know, whatever. So, um, so Ashwin's rug is 10 related stories about 10 different people who own the same prayer rug, which is Ashwin's rug. So it starts with Ashwin weaving it and it goes over a hundred years of different people who own it, you know, but the trick of the story is that, People own it and something happens and it moves to the next person. That was the, that was the hard part of the book, you know, was knowing who was going to have it next. I'm a character driven author. Um, I'm not a plot driven. I don't work on a plot. I, I create a character and then I wake up every day and I say, I wonder what that guy's doing today. Or I wonder what that woman is doing today. And so at one point, I want to, I want to tear that apart a little bit sure. because I've not heard anybody explain it that way. I am a plot driven writer. I am a character driven writer. Right. And I don't mean to interrupt your, your story at all, but okay. real quick. What's the difference? Well, what's, it's not so much what's the difference, but what's the benefit of the well, well, for instance, John Grisham is a plot driven. Okay. Okay. So a plot driven uh, writer. In fact, I've set in on a lecture that he gave about being a plot driven author is you come up with an idea 
and you kind of say, okay, blah, 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 this is going to happen, that's going to happen, and this is where we're going to end up. And so it's, you know, like they have the plot in their mind, and then the, they have the character, they create a character who can go through the plot and, you know, come out the other end, whatever. Okay. And a character-driven author builds a character and um, puts them in a situation and then um, allows them to fail and to succeed. And that's how the story moves forward is, you know, with character-driven. And so the plot becomes secondary. In a character-driven novel, the character, the main character is always, like we are in real life, always moving towards redemption, always trying to be the better self, we hope. Yeah. <laughs> that is the exceptions to that, you know, like the, the exception I always give is, you know, uh, who is the guy who ate people, you know, uh, of the lambs. So, you know, he was not moving to his better self. No, we, we had to stay with him because we had to know, you know, what is this guy going to do? So it, a reader would say, what is this guy going to do when they're reading? They may not say, oh, I'm reading a character driven book, but their, their response to the book is going to be, I wonder what this guy is going to do next. But a plot driven, you know, book, the reader is going to say, I wonder what's going to happen next. Oh, Yes, because so, I'm sitting here and it's like, what am I? And I am very much the character driven because right. to me, when I'm sitting in, I'm I'm in their, I, I'm I'm in their head. I'm I feel what they feel. I smell what they smell, and I I'm moving right along with the character in right. the book. But if I'm writing a a nonfiction piece. Obviously, I'm not in a character role. And in that case, I have that outline, the, a loose outline, uh, because I, I am someone who follows the flow and it doesn't always follow the, the, um, the outline. But that's interesting. Yeah, so that's the difference. And so once you understand that, then you can actually have better control over what you're doing. Yes. You know, you can be more purposeful. And so like with the inevitable past, I didn't know what the last, I, I didn't know where this book was going ever, you know, right. and, um, that's why I had to go to Macon, Georgia, because I had to figure this out. I didn't know what the next piece was going to be. And so I, I often talk about it in terms of, you know, the good parent and the bad parent. The bad parent says, my father was a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor. I'm a doctor. You're going to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And the child has the option to be a doctor and hate their parents because they don't want to be a doctor or rebel and run away, you know, but the good parent, the character driven author will say, uh, you know, you are mine. I've created you. And I love you for your faults. And that's the other thing. If you're a character-driven author, you ha the character has to have faults. The character has to have faults. <laughs> if they don't have faults, they can't get better, you know? Right. And so you're trying to move your character to a better state of grace, always. So anyway, I have this rug. And this, does that make sense to you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, you have no idea how many like ding, 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 dings just yeah. went off in my head because 
and you know the thing is is there are so many people who say you've got to write this way there's so many like hardened gotta do's and we all write differently but yet there's common threads that you know just like how we all talk it's the same thing but in this by presenting it this way what you've done is and the and this was a phrase that came to me as you were saying it is you just took away the shame right. of not doing it like they said you had to do it. There's a hundred ways to do things right, you know? Yes. But, but if you understand the difference between plot-driven and character-driven, bam, your life becomes much easier as a writer. Oh and it's gosh. a choice. It's a choice, you know? It is. And so make that make the one that is comfortable for you. For me, it's comfortable to have people who I don't know what they're going to do. So yes. I'm writing Ashwin's Rug. And the trick is the rug has to go from hand to hand, has to get to the next person. And it gets to the next person. It can't always be the same way because then it becomes a boring book, you know? Right. Part of the fun is how does the how does the rug get to the next person? Right. So through a series of events, the rug winds up, I don't know, chapter four, chapter five, the rug winds up with a priest who has lost his faith. And the prayer rug, it's a prayer rug. And the prayer rug, he is trying to bring back his faith by using this prayer rug. And this prayer rug becomes like so important to him. And, you know, he's a Catholic priest, but here he is with a Muslim prayer rug. And he's, yeah. but it's like he's, you know, but he, that is his world. Well, he was a fascinating character in, for many, many reasons for me. He was really fun to work with. but. I began to realize after about three months into this priest owning this prayer rug that he was not going to share this rug with anyone, that this was not going to, he was not going to give up this rug in goodwill to somebody else who might need it more or whatever. Because know? he's dependent on it. He's dependent on it. And he, he never quite gets to the point that he has that, that passionate, you know, he's, he's trying to get back to the passion of his faith. And man, every day I'd come to my office, I'd sit down and I'd say, okay, what are we going to do today? And I'd start working and maybe I'd get a sentence out of it. Maybe I'd get him to get some tea and I got him starting drinking, you know, you know, whatever. And so he was, he drank a little bit too much sherry and he talked about ghosts, which made his um, care to, you know, his housekeeper, very unnerved anyway and this went on and on and on and he was not giving up this rug so i woke up one morning after about five months of this now we're talking about a short piece here we're not talking about a major 300 page piece we're talking about one chapter and this guy is taking five six months of my time and i still cannot move that rug away and i have to have him to move the rug because i don't know who the next character is oh so, yeah yeah so that so i have some problems here so yes. i woke up one morning and i went to my office and i killed him and that was it Stephen king kill you your dog was like, <laughs> he was gone my problem was solved you know i just killed him and that was unfortunate but then mildred thought the rug was creepy and she gave it away so anyway um <laughs> so you know when you're a character driven author 
you you have a lot it's more to me it's more fun you have many more puzzles to solve you have many more things to think about you have many more you know avenues avenues to take them the best part about writing is learning it and experiencing it as as the character experiences the storyline because if we the writer are not surprised by or shocked by then how can we relay that to the audience exactly because we're going to write that with passion and and you know so so now you know character driven versus plot driven you know yes (laughs) so in 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 all of our conversation is there a pearl of wisdom that you would share with another writer that's I don't want to say struggling because we all have struggles and they're nameless, you know, or there's too many names to put to them. But if there is a, you know, what is a bit of advice you would give to a writer who is like, like literally pen in hand and an inch away from putting it to the paper or tapping on a keyboard? What's that bit of advice? to always remember that we read because we're voyeurs we want to see we want to experience and that uh, a story a book a short story is really um, a door or a window into another life and you need to imagine that door and your job is to open that door and that's the job you do is you open that door. So if you go into it thinking, I'm going to open this door so somebody can have this experience and you keep that as part of your focus and it's a mirror and a door, then you're going to be okay. It's yeah. a door. What you're doing is you're opening the door for somebody and you're opening them into another world. Yes. And I think that that's why science fiction is so popular because it's so clearly a door, you know, you walk into a different world and, you know, but all good fiction is a door. Mm -hmm. Well, and even nonfiction, um, some of it. Nonfiction is a door that lets you reflect and gives you an opportunity to um, measure your own life against it. Yes. Yes. Really wonderful. Yes. You know, I often use this, the one, the great train robbery, you know, which was a fabulous book. I always use that book. And I said, you know, I loved that book. I absolutely love that book. And it's about people who rob trains. I have never wanted to rob a train, but I was (laughs) able to read that book and have the experience be right in the middle of a train robbery and have that kind of heart racing experience of what the train robbery was. And for that reason alone, I loved that book because it made my heart race. It made me feel like, whoa, that's what robbing a train is. It was so visceral and so real. And that's why people, you know, Moby Dick, why? Because you know, the, a third of the book is chasing the whale, but you are with the whale. You're one with the whale. And, right. you know, that kind of experience of having been able to read a book that took you in a place you've never gone. That's 
a door that's been open for you. And just, you know, keep that in mind. Your job is to open the door, you know, and take the word writer away from it, except for, I will say, and then I do have to close. I will say that whenever I do a writing group, the first, I treat it like an AA meeting. And I make everybody <laughs> oh. go around the room and they have to say, hello, my name is Carrie and I am, am a-, a writer. Yes. Say that. And so we treat yep. it a little bit like AA and that's great. And it's kind of like a confession and it's not a secret anymore. It's not a secret that that's what you want to do. And that's great. And our words have power. So. Words are powerful. What is your website real quick before we end? Website is the letter C-J-A-N-E-C-J-A-N-E-W-R-K C-J-A-N-E-W-R-K.com. Perfect. Thank you. I am so grateful for this conversation. Oh, great. Well, invite me back, you know? Oh, of course. Of Sounds course. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for, you know, having this conversation. I've loved it. I, I, me too. Thank you. Before we end our time together, I'd love to say thank you for listening to my entertaining and very, very educational conversation with Carrie Knowles. To access her website and learn more about the books she has written, visit pentapaperpress.com backslash podcast and select the show notes page for this episode. If this episode resonated with you, please share it on social media and with those you feel will be inspired by it. Help us spread the wisdom. You never know who else needs to hear the messages that are weaved into this conversation. To receive future episodes in your inbox, subscribe to the Pen to Paper Press newsletter and follow the Pen to Paper Press podcast on social media. Take care and until next time, keep your pen to paper and write Your words have power. Your story matters. Bye for now.